Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Psalm 58. We're going to take a little extra time with Psalm 58 today because it is one of the most controversial psalms in all the Bible. Some modern-day liturgies actually cut it out entirely, such as the Roman Catholic Liturgy of the Hours. Some others simply chop off the last several verses. It is a serious thing, I would think, to to edit out chapters and verses of the Bible, So I think we need to slow down and think very carefully here. This psalm, Psalm 58, is a classic example of what scholars call an imprecatory psalm. It's a psalm that seeks to do warfare with evil and evildoers. Gordon Wenham has written a fair bit on the need to retain these imprecatory psalms, and he says, The Old Testament views history as a constant struggle between order and chaos, life and death. And these psalms represent the psalmist taking sides with order, closed quote. And by praying them in the church today, we make it clear that we are taking sides as well. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The imprecatory psalms add a little bit of content to those familiar refrains. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a mictum of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? Now, I'm not sure why the ESV has this as gods in verse 1a. Almost every commentator I've consulted understands these as human rulers. The Hebrew word could mean silent ones, as per the NKJV, but it could also mean mighty ones, as per the CSB. But everyone seems to agree that whether they are silent or mighty, they are definitely human rulers. In verse 2, David answers his own rhetorical question. Do you decree what is right, you mighty, silent human leaders? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. These rulers have used their positions to work wickedness on the earth. Plumer says here, All the time they were sitting as solemn and dignified judges, they were meditating wrong and injury. Closed quote. Verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. The doctrine of original sin may be unpopular, but it is certainly not unbiblical. Here, David says that people come out of the womb going astray. They don't need to be taught how to rebel. They just do it by hereditary instinct. That's the doctrine of original sin. Original sin says that we are born in this world with a broken compass. We think things are right that are not right. And we think things are wrong that are not wrong. 
Our ideas about God and good are warped and distorted. And as a result, we always end up doing actual sin. Not only is that doctrine confirmed by experience, it is clearly and consistently taught in Holy Scripture. David goes on to say in verse 4, They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Here, David says that some people are so focused on sin that they cannot be turned aside. Like a snake that doesn't hear the charmer, they are bound and determined to do that which is wicked and hurtful. David is saying something very serious and sober here. He is saying that there is an evil in the world that cannot be restrained by human argument or reason. And that explains why David goes where he goes in the next verse. Verse 6 says, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. These are the verses that cause some modern-day folks distress. These are the imprecatory prayers that some consider out of place. But are they? What is David saying here? He is asking God to break the power of wicked people. Look at the expression, break their teeth, tear out the fangs of the young lions. Many people suggest that our English English expression, toothless tiger, comes from this verse. A toothless tiger is a creature that would do more evil than it can do. It means of violence have been removed. It is a cat declawed, we might say. That is what is being prayed for here, right? Take away the means, take away the ability of wicked people to hurt and maim and kill innocent people. How in the world is that not an appropriate prayer? That's a good prayer. A serial killer in a jail cell is a toothless tiger, and I'm all for it. I have no problem praying for that. Then he says, let them melt away like water, like a like a giant ice dam that threatens to crush your roof and bring your house down. Let it all melt away in the light of the sun. Let their plans and schemes come to nothing. Let their arrows be blunted so that they do not pierce the hearts of innocent people. My friends, this is not unchristian or sub-Christian in any way. This is little different than asking in the Lord's prayer for God to deliver us from evil. Shut the mouths of the lions, Lord. Pull the teeth of the tigers, God. Blunt the arrows of the wicked, Lord. Deliver us from evil. That's not sub-Christian, for crying out loud. That's smack dab in the middle of the Lord's prayer. It is appropriate for Christians to pray this way. 
I love what Calvin says here, commenting specifically on verse 7. He says, Let us not cease to pray, even after the arrows of our enemies have been fitted to the string, and destruction might seem inevitable. A good Christian, Calvin is saying there, prays against the onslaught of evil, wickedness, and persecution. The fact that some find this inappropriate today suggests perhaps a lack of empathy for the great mass of Christians in North Korea and Pakistan and Libya and the Middle East who still need daily rescue from the snares and assaults of wicked people. It is not sub-Christian to ask God to thwart, blunt, and dissipate the schemes of evil people. Nor is it sub-Christian to long for the day when wicked powers will be removed entirely from this earth. The last line there in verse 9 simply turns the, the vision of Matthew 13, 40 to 43 into a prayer. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. It can't be a sin to pray for what Jesus said would happen. This is just another way of praying. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus' kingdom comes, wickedness will be swept away forever. David prayed for it, and Jesus promised it, so it is definitely not sub-Christian. Verse 10 goes on to say, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous, Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Now, many consider these two verses among the most problematic in the Old Testament. The image of bathing our feet in the blood of the wicked, of course, is drawn from a culture of hand-to-hand -hand combat. David would have had many experiences of walking over a battlefield inspecting the wounded picking up discarded weapons and hearing under his feet the swish and squash of blood-soaked turf. By employing that imagery, unfamiliar and foreign as it may be to us, he is saying that the victory of God in the end over evil will be just that final and decisive. All those who oppose God, in the end, at the time of his coming, will be cut down and destroyed. The earth will be wet and soft with their slaughter. Again, it would be hard to consider that a sub-Christian image when comparing it to what we find in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, Deep into the New Testament, obviously, the Apostle John speaks about the coming of the Lord, the climactic final battle wherein God confronts the forces of evil and rebellion, and it fits very well with what David says in Psalm 58. Deep 
into the New Testament. John says this, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. David speaks about feet covered in blood. John sees Jesus wearing a robe covered in blood and wielding a sword with which to strike down the nations. These are obviously related images. There will be a final reckoning for all those who oppose God and pursue evil and wicked ends. It will be bloody, bloody. it will be catastrophic, and it will wipe the board clean. Old Testament and New, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, can we pray a prayer like this? I would maybe turn that around and ask, what happens to us if we don't pray prayers like this? Because there are prayers like this in the Old and New Testaments. There's a prayer like this in Revelation 6.10. The souls of the martyrs under the altar of God pray a prayer that sounds kind of Old Testament-y. They pray, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. If such prayers are prayed in the Bible, Old Testament and New, then what happens to us when they are no longer prayed in the church? Gordon Wenham warns that to eliminate prayers that God would pour out his wrath on our enemies would reduce the biblical God to a spectator uninterested in this world, closed quote. He goes on to commend psalms like Psalm 58 by saying, these psalms can serve to wake us up from our structural amnesia about God, closed quote. These psalms remind us that God is holy. He is not mocked. Wickedness is short-sighted. And wise are all those who seek the mercy of God in Christ while it remains to be found. Thanks be to God. The RMM Bible Reading Plan has us reading two psalms today. So we'll also quickly take a look at Psalm 59. The inscription says, To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a mictum of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house, in order to kill him. This obviously refers to the story recorded in 1 Samuel 19. Let me remind you of that by reading verses 11 to 12. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal 
David's wife told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Mikael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. That's the story. And this is the psalm, the prayer that goes with it, starting at verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine. They run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Now, this may be David broadening out his prayer to encompass both his immediate concern and his wider concern for the nations who seek the destruction of Israel, or it may simply be a reference to some of the Gentile mercenaries in Saul's employ. Scholars differ on that question. Verse 6, each evening they come back howling like dogs, prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips. Let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. In these verses, David is praying for a specific type of deliverance. Plumer explains, The sense seems to be, Do not suddenly or utterly destroy them, but so bring about thy gracious ends by marked providences, weakening their dangerous power, that it shall make a profound impression on my people, and they shall not soon or easily forget it. As always, David is interested primarily in the glory of God and the good of God's people, over and above his own immediate concerns. Verse 14. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. People are degraded by their evil actions. These men have become dogs, howling and prowling about the city. Sin diminishes us. It distorts the image of God in us and makes us little more than beasts. But, verse 16, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. David wisely 
turns his attention away from his enemies and towards the mercy and grace of God. Too much time considering the foe makes us fearful. But singing about and praying to the God of our salvation steadies the soul. God is our rock and our fortress. If God is for us, then who can stand against us? It was the memory of these truths that encouraged David to make good his escape. David stepped out, and God made a way. As he has done in the past, so will he do in the future. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.